Welcome to the 24th episode of Tomorrow Never Knows, the podcast for people who are interested in politics, history, feminism, popular culture and women who speak about those things. (laughs) I am Charlotte Lydia Riley. And I'm Emma London. And this is the first of our two-parter on foreign policy, British foreign policy in particular, I suppose. Yeah, Britain in the world. Britain in the world. Um, And why are we talking about this? There are so, slightly depressing connotations, maybe. Yeah, there's a depressing kind of current context, isn't there? But um, so obviously, you know, there is the kind of British, the bin fire that is British foreign policy at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, the context of Brexit makes this all very alive at the moment. Um, and actually, more generally, I guess, you know, things like Trump. Uh, we're recording this as, as Trump is visiting Britain. Mm. Trump is in the country at the moment. And so it... People are thinking a lot at the moment about things like the special relationship. Yes. Um, And we've talked on this podcast before about ideas like um, things to do with empire and ideas about Britain, British power and stuff. Um, One of the reasons we said we were going to do this episode is because we started having this very very long conversation about how Brexit has exposed Britain for being a very poor negotiator when it doesn't have a war victory or just general firepower well also an empire i think there's always the expectation among a certain type of british person that britain is good at this stuff because britain managed to amass and then hold on to an empire and it completely ignores the fact that imperialism is built on kind of violence and and violence and coercion and and strength yeah it's different isn't it like when britain had an empire they were powerful in the world because they controlled a fifth of the world's population and a quarter of its landmass but also britain didn't achieve or hold on to that empire through negotiation it didn't achieve or hold on to that empire through good diplomacy no but people i think sometimes look at britain you know kind of hark back to this moment of britain being very powerful and think that that must mean something about our diplomatic services or our foreign office but all it means is that we were good at storming into countries and machine gunning people essentially yeah. which is not really the approach we're supposed to be taking to brussels <laughs> <laughs> no i don't think it would have helped i think we're both interested in our work as well in foreign policy yeah um in in slightly different ways maybe how does how does kind of the concept of foreign policy fit into your work um there's been so i work a lot of um, my subjects have been female politicians, mm-hmm. so women in politics. And I've noticed that they, one of the biggest findings of my PhD thesis, I think, mm-hmm. was that they have used international organisations to make careers mm. in and then return home as mm-hmm. experts mm-hmm. with a good reputation abroad. Yeah. And then been able to make, like, sort of more national mm-hmm. uh, careers out of that. So they've kind of, so for me, I spent a lot of time looking at sort of the international community as a stage mm-hmm. where people sort of perform their skills. Mm. <laughs> Naoko Shimatsu, who is a, a historian of kind of diplomacy, she has this really good stuff about diplomacy as theatre. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have to say that I'm quite inspired by Naoko. She was a mm-hmm. Birkbeck when I did my PhD there and I've spent a lot of time talking to her and she's yeah. she's absolutely brilliant. So, um, yeah, I'm and, indebted to her. And your kind of women in your PhD are Swedish and South African women, isn't it? So it's yeah. kind of both women from the Global North and the Global South and how they're using those kinds of spaces. Yeah, and they obviously use them in very different ways. I've spoken about this before, but there's, you know, the clear distinction that social democratic Swedish women Mm -hmm. were mostly in power during the era that I studied. So my Mm -hmm. thesis is from 1960 until 1994. They were mostly, the party was mostly the government party. Whereas in South Africa, I mean, most of the ANC women that I study weren't even in South Africa. Mm -hmm. They are exile activists running dangerous schemes in order to be able to liberate South Africa yeah. so they they use but they use the same venues mm-hmm. and for their policy, activism foreign policy is an activist and also foreign policy is an exile are mm. interesting right because as an exile it's not it's actually not it's kind of domestic policy but from abroad yeah and it's interesting because there's a lot of things that are close to the ANC activists so mm. if you look at the uh, 1975 um, women's conference yes. in Mexico City 
the ANC members could only go to the NGO mm-hmm. um, part of the conference because yeah. they're not they weren't recognized as the yeah. nation leaders so there's there's loads of little things like that and I think foreign policy exposes really interesting ideas about countries mm. their their own ideas about themselves mm-hmm. the sort of it's how nationalism is displayed yeah. to other people but it's also kind of you know, it it does crystallise slightly differently. So so Swedish foreign policy is incredibly different mm. in comparison to British foreign policy. And arguably Sweden has been a... Because Sweden is a negotiating democracy to mm-hmm. start with within its own borders. Mm-hmm. There's always minority coalitions and mm-hmm. stuff these days. Um but we haven't have had a majority government since 1968. Mm-hmm. So there's always negotiations happening. But they sort of do that abroad as well. And they're very good at doing it. Mm-hmm. So they've ended up with this incredibly powerful yeah. way of, of getting their way. Well, it's post the post-45 context, which is really important in foreign policy, right? It's a moment in 1945 after the Second World War where you have this reconfiguration. And almost kind of before the Cold War, actually, where you have this shuffling of of the you know and this idea maybe that it's the beginning of decolonization although actually for britain and france that's not really until the 60s and mm. this moment of things like the united nations and and unesco and all these or- international organizations and sweden has a kind of an important role there but it's also as a kind of a, a country that although we've talked before on this podcast about it, it does have an imperial past yeah but it has it in, in a different way. Yeah. And so from 1945, Sweden is able to present itself kind of as neutral in that mm. thing. And Scandinavian countries generally are perceived in foreign policy terms as being broadly neutral, right? Relatively neutral in the Cold War, relatively neutral in struggles of imperialism. And it gives them a particular... Even if that's even if that's just what British people think about yeah. them, it still gives them a particular sort of role on the world stage. So yeah, so Sweden was neutral in the Second World War. Yeah. Finland was uh, occupied yeah. and invaded by the Russians. Mm-hmm. Norway was occupied and invaded by the Germans, as was Denmark. Yeah. So, I mean, it does have a very specific yeah. position, yeah. sort of starting from a fresh... Well, Stockholm was the only unbombed capital city in Europe. Yeah. Although yeah. um, I also I thought that when I went to Amsterdam last year, that it's because it it was uh, Rotter, uh, uh, Rotterdam was very heavily bombed. Mm. But Amsterdam wasn't really because it surrendered. Right. Mm. They, they it fell to Nazi Germany very quickly. And I was talking to my Dutch um, kind of contact who was there who works in the heritage industry in the Netherlands, and he was like, "Yeah, it's interesting actually because what you see here is collusion." <laughs> Like yeah. the, the beautiful centre of Amsterdam exists essentially because of collaboration with the Nazi government, and he's yeah. like, it's actually a really interesting kind of type of memorial. That the reason why we have this beautiful, this beautiful kind of I was going to say capital then, but it's not, is it? The Hague is the capital, but mm. the reason why we have this beautiful architecture is essentially because we. Yeah, and that's one of the things about Sweden and neutrality mm. is that neutrality is never very neutral. They no. were they agree to a lot of conditions that the Germans yeah. set, including sending troop transportations on trains through Sweden to get to Norway. Mm. And Norway was properly occupied. I mean, very violently yeah. so, with very violent um, measures taken against any form of, mm-hmm. of local resistance. Denmark was uh, a minstopotektorat, which is like... The Germans, the Nazi government decided to set it up as a sort of... They they put their weapons down pretty much immediately yeah. as soon as, as the Nazi troop crossed the border. So they they kind of had... It functioned as its own country. Like, like a vassal state. Almost. Yeah, but they, I mean, they had a social democratic government for three mm-hmm. years under Nazi occupation. Wow. I mean... Sweden took the Danish Jews as well, didn't they? Yeah, and um, yeah. Yeah. That's part of the war story, is that? Yeah, kind of? so in 1943, the yeah. Danish resistance organised a mass evacuation of Jews. So mm. in the end, there were only a few hundred of the Danish Jews ended up in Theresienstadt. Mm-hmm. And the majority of them survived. Mm. I did my undergrad dissertation on this, actually, mm. yeah, for Julian Jackson, my... a French histor- historian of France, yeah. <laughs> it's funny, because talking about the second world war i think some of my interest in foreign policy comes from my family history Mm. because my mum's father was german um and so my understanding of my family history was really shaped by this idea of you know he was born in in silesia which was poland when he was born but germany reclaimed very quickly and had been german before the first world war and 
and then he yeah, ended you up were being... saying once that your all your um, granddad's siblings had different nationalities. Yeah, I mean, he, my grandfather's one of my grandfather's brothers was in the Polish cavalry, but my grandfather and his closest brother were in the German army. So it's a very it, yeah, it's a, it's a you know, and I think that he was, you know, and he had he had kind of he had a, he had a brother who was in the in a Russian concentration camp. Um, so obviously also was fighting for Germany who escaped and he walked home from Siberia to East Germany and so it's a funny sort of having a family history and we've talked about this before having family history that kind of connects to the Second World War in slightly different ways Mm. having relatives who are on different sides and things it I think it really shaped when I was younger my understanding of Britain in the world and this kind of connectedness and obviously now because you know thinking so today is the anniversary of the D-Day yeah D-Day landings and um I've taught the Second World War quite a lot at university and I used to teach a special subject on it and I always, always used to say to my students, you know, you can't say we to talk about British people in the past, that's really problematic from a historical perspective, but it's also problematic in this room because my grandfather is not one of your we, right? Mm. My grandfather fought against Britain. So it's interesting. I mean, my my PhD was foreign policy Yeah. in a very... I was going to say dull then. I'm not going to say dull, but in a very <laughs> traditional dull. way. It's it's white men talking in rooms about things that happen abroad. And yeah, you say that, but I mean, what I've read of your PhD thesis is not actually... You <laughs> said at the very Charlotte Lydia O'Reilly fashion. So it, everyone, go and download Charlotte's PhD uh, and, and tell her she's wrong. My PhD is about the Marshall Plan, which is a moment in British foreign policy that's very interesting. And American foreign policy, I mean, actually, it's a moment in American foreign policy. It's actually very, very important right now because it's about European cooperation as well. Yeah. Um, the Marshall Plan's been invoked, actually been invoked very badly by historians <laughs> like Daniel Kaczynski, who uh, tweeted that Britain got no money from the Marshall Plan, which is very bizarre because Britain was, in fact, the largest recipient of Marshall Plan aid with 2.7 billion. Yeah dollars uh 98 million of which went to the empire Mm. which is what i looked at in my phd um and so since then i've kind of done work on british foreign policy in terms of aid and anglo-american relations is something that i work on quite a lot but actually i've kind of been shifting away from that sort of traditional foreign policy to think about it in different ways Mm. so i've just written an academic article about the international women's years but well, from 1975 to 1985, the International Women's Decade, the United Nations Decade for Women, you can tell how much they care about women by the fact that it's not even a proper decade. <laughs> it's that they um, they have three conferences in, in Mexico City, in Copenhagen, and then in Nairobi. And I, I've just written an article about the way that the British feminist magazine Spare Rib thinks about those conferences. They send they send correspondence to mm. all three. Um, so AMC women could only attend the NGO um, fair on the outskirts of the Mexico City. Mm. The NGO fair becomes a feature of the of these international women's conferences. They have the government conference and then they have the NGO conference, which is much more radical. Um, British women can't go to Mexico City because the British women's liberation movement in 1975 is kind of women in their early 20s with small children who have no money. Yeah, I remember Sally Alexander saying that when yeah. we were at a conference a couple of years ago, that it was... You know, for, for those of us who look through that history, yeah, with uh, through archives and stuff, it seems really unreasonable. It yeah, seems like yeah, a big yeah. missing gap, and for them, it's just this sort of lived reality. Of, that we you couldn't know, afford it. Who could go to Mexico City? Um, and just even in 1975, trying to fly even from Britain, you know, it's there's not a direct flight and yeah. and everything. Yes, because it's often been written. And the Swedish delegation stopped off in Cuba. And uh, of course Castro they did. <laughs> It was Prime Minister Olaf Palmer, and uh, I think she was the Minister of, of Labour, Anna Gagalé, yeah. on... <laughs> Britain, <laughs> they, Britain sends an official delegation, but a very small one, and then they send a delegation to Copenhagen and to Nairobi. Um, and Nairobi's really interesting, because the ANC... Um, not ANC, the spare rib, the spare rib um, sort of correspondent that they send um, is a woman whose uh, family background is, I think... Think, I think Kenyan, but certainly she has a, like an African migrant family background. Um, this is a, a woman of colour who goes mm. and writes about it from her from that perspective. Okay. When Sparrow got slightly better on race mm. into the 1980s. Um, so I started thinking, and I've also been writing about pacifism recently, um, and about a woman called Mary Agnes Hamilton, who I think I've talked about on this podcast before. But she's famous for the red shoes. Yes, because she wore, wore red shoes, um, who was a Labour MP. And she was a very 
very kind of active pacifist organiser in the First World War and she wrote a novel about pacifism which she published in 1917 to universal derision. Um, and then she writes two more novels and by the Second World War she's come round entirely to the idea of military intervention so she initially shifts towards the idea of collective security under the League of Nations mm. and then she comes round to the idea of, of intervention and her, in her diaries she talks about the shame of appeasement um, and the shame of sacrificing Czechoslovakia mm. um, so I've been writing about pacifism as a sort of force in foreign policy um, and a way of maybe writing women into some of these foreign policy stories. Yeah. I mean, we talked in episode 11. Mm. We recommended our favourite Cynthia Enloe <laughs> books. <laughs> yeah, so for recent listeners who haven't listened to that, Cynthia Enloe is a formidable uh, academic. And she's, she's sort of... What is it? IR really. Yeah, she's, she's. I think she's an IR theorist. Yeah. I think the reason that we're both saying that in a slightly... Um, in a slightly sceptical manner is hesitant fashion <laughs> because international relations is not renowned for its embrace of feminism or indeed women yeah uh, when my phd supervisor who who is a historian but who always worked on diplomatic history international history she's a his, uh, kathleen burke she's a historian of anglo-american relations mm. when she said that when she was first going to conferences you know she would often be the only woman in these spaces mm. i think she, when she was first hired she didn't even have an office in her first job and things like this um yeah it tends to be very straight laced it's like you said before when you talked about your thesis which isn't like that but you know that white men in rooms white men in rooms uh being overlooked by white men hanging on the walls of the same rooms yeah it's it's very i mean i i think i have the same problem with football punditry mm. <laughs> it's is the, which is getting it's better like, like it actually is. becomes like punditry really yes. it's a lot about yes. who did what to which individual or country yeah um I like telling to... very clear stories yeah. using press reports mm-hmm. and like the i suppose they would like to call it the bigger picture whereas i really, feel like um... When you get down to the nitty-gritty in a way that Cynthia Enloe does, or the, mm-hmm. the material she uses kind of illuminates a lot of the yeah. thinking and the processes and the silencing and the yeah. the creation of culture, which I think is what's really fascinating me about yeah. foreign policy and international communities. It's like this creation of a shared, yet at the same time quite opposing culture. Mm. Well, IR also, I mean, it really focuses on states as well yeah. sometimes you know and interstate relations and transnational organizations and again like this is this is a very i'm, I'm giving a very stereotypical description of it ir has diversified and t- has i think started to decolonize in the way that other fields have as well as kind of discovered gender maybe mm. um, the way that our profession as well i mean we're historians yeah, also hasn't really you know, you know engaged with decolonization properly and, or and gender, or gender. Um, <laughs> but ir often kind of focuses very much on on states you know official state records official state kind of papers you know yeah. when I, I i've been to the the state i mean i work a lot in the state archives in Kew in the british state archives but i've also been to the state archives in america um, and the ones in america are in this incredible building like and the security to get in is incredible and you know they have I mean, one of the things that I did when I was there was they have all of these um, computers that are paid for by the CIA. Hmm. And there is a label on the top of the computers that says this is CIA property. And the librarian, the archivist, showed me to the computers and said, you can print as much as you want off these computers because the CIA pays for all the paper and toner. And it's um, they've kind of digitalized a bunch of CIA documents. And actually, the thing, this is a tangent, but the stuff that's most useful for is because they were... You'd, I. I didn't find anything useful about the actual CIA in those documents. I, you know, I didn't find anything. I was working on American aid, American, the creation of the USAID department. I didn't find anything super useful about the CIA in that, but I found loads of useful stuff about all the countries they were spying on. Mm-hmm. So I got loads of brilliant documents about British aid programs <laughs> because the CIA had them on their computer. Loads of great stuff about, um, you know, kind of recipient nations, what are always called re- recipient nations, Afri- newly decolonized African nations. Yeah, cool. Because the CIA just kept, you know, obviously they were just, so that was brilliant. Um, but that kind of really kind of state top-down focus. Yeah. Um, and the other thing IR does, which historians are very suspicious of, um, is it tends to want to make 
rules and theories to explain yeah you know because it's because it's not just looking at the past it's 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 a it's a current it has current concerns in a way that historians are allowed to not yeah it's a social science in a way that history certainly isn't yes exactly and it's looking at the here and now but that means they want to make rules and they want to they want to think about explain through three explain through theories that's a really difficult thing to say but it and and that has historically often meant thinking about about states and thinking about people in charge and that has historically often been men um and yeah and it sort of depopulizes things as well in that way that they sort of the normative person it removes all people which just yes. means that the normative person is left which is the white yeah. man in yeah, power yeah. <laughs> ordinary people come into ir in terms of public opinion yeah. right their public opinion but again but that's so that's so kind of um that's so sort of defined as being essentially just you know an average an average person and so what Cynthia Enlow has done in her work consistently done in her work is well first of all she talks about um so in the curious feminist which is the book that I recommended in episode 11 she talks about the need to maintain your feminist curiosity um and not to let the patriarchy slide past like an oil tanker going through fog (laughs) so the idea that you have to interrogate um where gender is in foreign policy so you need to think about the aid worker or the um gi bride or the uh child wearing army fatigues or the um yeah the the um recipient of charity Mm. the bombed um victims you know where can you not just where are women but where is gender where are things gendered and how can you tell those stories um and in so she has um, a really good book called uh, "Does um, Does Khaki Become You," mm. which is about women who who serve in in the military. So that's like specifically writing women into a into a particular story. But she also has a lot more where she's thinking more generally about things like, for example, sex workers and how they experience American occupation yeah. of um, Vietnam, for example, and how that has a kind of gender story. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, there there are many ways of telling these stories about countries, mm-hmm. I suppose, is what we're trying to say here. So, the, the, but the, the traditional, what we're trying to go against, I suppose, or where our interest lies in, is in doing it in a slightly, like, swimming against the stream, I suppose. Because mm. the, the type of histories that people learn about Britain in school still mm-hmm. or Sweden for that matter st- st- still seem to be um, reinforcing the stereotypes mm. that the countries would like to tell themselves yes. so that Britain is a great power yeah. that there's something specifically British about Britain is a great power, we've talked before about British values right? yeah. Britain is a great power who fights wars to protect democracy mm. and who responds to refugees in a humane and humanitarian generous liberal manner yeah um britain is a great britain is one of the five great powers because britain is on the un security council six now right? yeah. but with, without any without really any interrogation either of what that means britain for britain to be a great power britain had to be an imperial power yeah in 1945 in 1945 but also that britain had to be a victor in 1945 that's what that mm. means yeah. right britain having an important role in nato is partly because of Ernest Bevan's role in NATO, but also because Britain was on the winning side in 1945. Yeah. But this stuff is written into our contemporary readings of Britain as a foreign power. And there's a lot of press coverage of Britain doing international diplomacy, British politicians doing international diplomacy, not just in the context of Brexit, but on loads of different issues, on North Korea or in um, the, I don't know, the Kyoto Protocols, things to do with environment or whatever. There's always the assumption that Britain should be taken seriously internationally as as an important diplomatic player. Yeah, and a country with a lot of, with a long history of mm-hmm. and knowledge. I think I mentioned this when we were talking about... Um, I must have mentioned it at some point. I feel like I've really mentioned it. But, it, but with the Iraq invasion mm-hmm. in 2003, that there was loads of talk in the media. I was a journalism student at the time, so we were really taking a close look at what the, how media was reporting the invasion. Mm-hmm. And that was um, the kind of... Um, mirror image of the American 
GI with the helmet and the the mm-hmm. glasses and like looking like a robot basically. And yeah. then you saw the British soldiers take off their helmets and put their berets on in yeah. Basra. And yeah. that was meant to be a sign that Britain was, you know, had more experience of the region, knew how to deal with Iraqis the and locals, Arabs, right? The locals and they're has, dealing with has the locals, a history yeah. there. Yeah. I mean, Britain did invent Iraq. Yeah. I'll, I'll give Britain that part in in, in uh, I mean you can see this history. with them. But I think what I think is interesting is that Sweden has the opposite mm. view, really. I mean Sweden is not a great power, mm-hmm. is not a member of the Security Council, was a member of the Security Council last year, I think. There's mm-hmm. a, a rotating place, I think. Yeah. Um but yeah, does not have automatic access to is mm-hmm. not one of the big five, mm-hmm. did not win the Second World War. But has still managed to, you know, send loads of of diplomats to the UN, high-ranking mm-hmm. diplomats to the UN. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and, and the history of Sweden is so tied up with the history of the UN. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. of overlapping. Yeah, definitely, and because of the sort of the roots and and the things like um, I've now forgotten his name, the man who uh, the Secretary General. Yes, um, Dag Hammarskjöld. Yeah, yeah. Uh, good, I'm glad to let you say that. Um, <laughs> but the, you know the, the history of Sweden, and and Sweden kind of establishes itself from that posi- from that point as being having a kind of diplomatic, international community diplomatic role, right? Yeah, and having some sort of status as yeah. the kind of neutral party, but like a benevolent. We did did not have. I'm now talking about the the what they're saying rather than me. I wouldn't wouldn't say we, but like we don't have colonies so mm-hmm. therefore we can be in charge of yeah. negotiations between colonialized people and mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Co- colonial office yeah and stuff and a it's kind of you a know part of... part of it might potentially yeah. be you know somewhat true but you know there's sweden has a long history of missionary work yeah, yeah. it had a mm. long history of collaboration and uh, aiding and abetting the transatlantic mm-hmm. slave trade it's rooted in a much. It's rooted in a very, a very strong denial as well of the some of the bigger pressures, like both north south, the mm. north south divide, but also whiteness. Right, it's a yeah. denial of the role that whiteness has in those foreign policies. Yeah, and I think Sweden, up until today, I mean, continuously today, kind of is one of those nations that would claim to be colorblind, mm-hmm. not yeah. realizing that that is actually a yeah. massive problem. And that fits and into... only the very privileged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, only if you've ever never experienced racism could you claim yeah. to be colorblind. And of course, you know, Britain allow and Britain and British people and liberals in the West allow Sweden to get away with that, right? We think of Scandinavia as generally, and and maybe Sweden particularly as being a kind of liberal paradise mm. of. A welfare state and social democracy and things and so and we've talked about this before again on this podcast about how sweden has managed to kind of hide from the outside world mm. the problems it has with with um like racial inequalities and racism yeah it's it's perceived very much as it's perceived as a very white country from outside the world apart from very you know very rarely when it gets pulled up as being a space that has problematic immigration by people on the far right yeah <laughs> But it's last night in Marmo was a thing that Trump did a yeah. couple of years ago that blew up. But yes, <laughs> but it's a sort of I don't know. Brit- Britain sort of seeing itself as having this this type of foreign policy is also interesting for me. I think in in terms of how it relates. I mean, like you said, Brit- foreign policy is about your image of the world, right? And but mm. and about your image of your place within it. Yeah. And it's interesting that British people, I mean, we're going to, we've talked about Brexit before, we'll talk about Brexit again, but like British people have always had a difficult relationship with the European Union um, and, and perhaps born largely of ignorance. British people are far more ignorant of the European Union than, than other European countries are. Mm. Um, but also generally British people are, I think, notably cool about things like the United Nations as well because of this sense of Britain being a great power. Yeah, there's partly. a sense that it's redundant, mm. isn't it? Because that's the thing that you do not get in Sweden. Yeah. Like, the United Nations is very important yes. in the eyes of Swedish politicians and the public, I presume. Yeah. I mean, there used to be when I lived there. Um, and, you know, it's it's a necessary yeah. means for Sweden to have any sort of role in the international community. Whereas for Britain, it's... And I suppose this is the thing that Trump has really kind of magnified as well, that 
some nations really think it's beneath them. Yeah, well, I mean, America... That it's it's this superstructure that just meddles. Yes, exactly. It's the meddling, isn't it? Because America's always had this thing about Pax Americana. Mm. America is the force in the world that needs to... And, you know, other people have... People have really underlined this. Now Ferguson's book, um, Colossus, Mm. which came out after Empire. So he has Empire, which is about the British Empire, and then he wrote Colossus, which came out straight afterwards, which was about American foreign policy, and basically made an argument that America should kind of rise up and and kind of develop a Pax Americana and it should really be America who had this role in the world of keeping, of kind of being a global policeman, which has always been a, a sort of an American thing. You know, Teddy Roosevelt's kind of walks softly and carry a big stick, ideas about the um, yeah. Monroe Doctrine. You know, America has always had quite a complicated relationship with, on one hand, being very isolationist, but on the other hand, kind of seeing itself as being a moral arbiter. Um, yeah. Again, defining itself as not being colonial, defining itself as as being kind of a shining city on a hill. I did Middle Eastern studies at the University of Lund before I moved to Sweden, mm-hmm. so 18 years ago, right as uh, 9-11 happened. Mm. And my, my thesis for that was called Pax Americana, and it was about the Reagan government's involvement in the Lebanese civil war, mm-hmm. the so-called civil war. <laughs> this is, I mean, I have a colleague, uh, Chris Fuller, who works on the, he's written a book called See It, Shoot It, which is about American drone policy. Oh, yeah. But part of what he does in his book, it, you know, it's not just post 9-11, it, it roots it back, to Reagan right this no. is a foreign policy it's been coming for a while actually and um and the thing about Trump that's interesting from a non-American perspective is that actually Trump's foreign policy does not really divert that much I mean he talks a talk about various things he talks a talk about pulling out of the United Nations or, or whatever his relationship with North Korea but you know American foreign policy has been problematic and complex for a long time mm. Obama didn't change it that much um and in fact actually massively expanded the power of the American presidency to do things like um, enable drone attacks, didn't close Guantanamo, despite you know people thinking that might be something that would happen once Bush left office. Yeah, I've read something really interesting, which I'm going to try to find for our footnotes. This is a few years ago, though, so it might be impossible for mm. my poor brain to find it. But it was about how the Obama presidency had been won abroad, mm-hmm. sort of in the eye he got support from the international community because he was talking about America mm-hmm. as a world power, yeah. but in reality, what he was interested in was reforming domestic policy within yes. within the US, and so he he got completely diverted from mm. the Guantanamo, yeah. the Middle East, and in and in his diversion, he went for the drone strikes. Well, also because it's hard. I mean, in you the same troops, way, you get troops home, which is a domestic policy, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you, you and then you kind do of drones because then you, you have some wins, right? Yeah, and, and you police the world with drones instead. It's funny, actually, left-wing policy. So in my work, um, I've made the argument that Labour has a particular aid policy, distinct to the Conservatives. That Labour's foreign policy generally, but their aid policy specifically, is distinct from the Conservatives because they use it to model a sort of morality in politics that they can model at home mm. right labor wants to think of itself as being redistributive um as kind of caring about people who have less than we do and so their aid policy is kind of framed in that way whereas the conservatives are much more likely to kind of criticize aid and to critique aid spending and you know recently we've had a series of both pretty patel and penny mordant have both are both people who actually fundamentally don't really believe in overseas aid but mm. have both had this role as being overseas aid um, minister um, again w- women are much more likely to have that role than men in Britain but it's interesting I think you know with Democrats actually having foreign policy again it's complicated in the same way that we talked about how we've talked about before how it's hard for um, women on the left to be politicians mm. because you're perceived to be more radical than you are just by being a woman yeah. and I think you know for Democrats foreign policy it's it's complicated isn't it because you have to you're not necessarily by American people seen as being reliable mm. in foreign policy, and you have to, and, and you have that kind of difficulty it's, with it. Yeah, they seem to be more humanitarian. Yes. I suppose. Yeah, which, which actually they're not. not. They haven't historically been. Although, again, you can kind of look at specific moments. So, for example, Clinton's, um, the the Clinton presidency and and, and Bosnia and, mm. and Kosovo, for example. Yeah. But you know, they they're kind of pushing. So Obama having to kind of he needed to to get Osama bin Laden, right? Because it's a way of proving that he can actually have a a, a critical and aggressive foreign policy. Mm. I'd really like to write something at some point. Um, I have worked a little bit on American foreign policy and I'd really like to write something in a few years about Clinton's role as Secretary of State. Mm. 
it's really interesting it's really interesting to look at how women you know it's still rare for women to have those kind of defense foreign policy roles yeah although less rare in in sweden but then sweden has this explicitly feminist foreign policy right yeah i think it's becoming a, a, a more female associated office around the world than it is in Britain. So yes. Britain has still never had a, apart from Margaret Beckett. Margaret Beckett, yeah. But she was the first and only. There hasn't been a woman in that position since. Mm-hmm. So she's. Um, it sort of started with Madeleine Albright. I feel. Yeah. That the that women started to to and I've mentioned this before. This is an episode in which we say we've mentioned this before a lot, but I've mentioned it before that Madeleine Albright had used being a woman to set herself apart yep. in quite a sort of overt fashion on the international stage at the time. So, um, and Sweden has kind of, kind of did the same. So we had a female foreign minister called Anna Lind who was murdered in 2003 while she was serving. Mm-hmm. So she, she was murdered during the um, referendum to adopt the euro. Mm. Um, possibly not for that reason, mm-hmm. but she was in the break from campaigning when she was stabbed to death in a department store in Stockholm. And she was a very... Pardon? I was going to say, the Swedish politicians seem to get murdered with... Yeah. And then... and, it, and it Olaf got... Palmer was also murdered yeah. in 1986. Yeah, and, and neither of them solved. Yeah, Anna Lynn's murder was solved. Okay. Yeah, it was solved within days. Okay. Uh, but Olaf Palmer's murder has still not been solved, although I keep hearing people... People keep telling me... <laughs> Um, all sorts of things about who was responsible but yes this is what happens when you hang out with South Africans I think mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> but anyway so I think a lot of countries have kind of moved into seeing the foreign office as a more female space apart from Britain apart from Britain where it's still very much a male dominated diplomatic environment but when you look at gatherings of foreign ministers these days there tend to be at least a few women yeah i mean interestingly in britain penny mordant has now become minister for defense Mm. um which was given to her i think partly as a reward but also partly because i mean she does have she's in the territorial army i think she has like a defense she's her constituency has has connections to the armed forces um it's but it's an interesting yeah in britain i don't think it is ever so it's it's not seen as anything sort of feminine it's definitely seen as being about hard power hard overseas power yeah and yeah the you know sweden has this explicitly feminist foreign policy and there's through margot wallstrom who yeah. is used to be a very high-ranking un official <laughs> well there's also moments i'm thinking particularly of the moment with sweden announcing feminist sort of talking about feminist foreign policy in the middle east right as being yeah so one of the first things that happened when the swedish government the former government margot wallstrom is still the foreign minister but we had an election last year mm-hmm. so when they were first elected in 2014. She uh, said that Sweden would not be selling weapons to mm. Saudi Arabia anymore. And that would fall under its sort of feminist foreign policy. It's, it's more than just treating women well, right? Yeah, it's yeah. about getting resources to women in particular. Yeah. But as a means of doing that, it's mm-hmm. also protecting civilian populations and stuff. So not selling weapons to a country that specifically oppresses women, but also fights fairly unjust wars in the region mm-hmm. and there was quite a big fallout it was a massive fallout but mm. she managed to stay in her office and i think she's one of Brit- sweden's most popular politicians mm. so she was able to actually go against the prime minister mm-hmm. um that's interesting who was much more ready to back down mm. than she was and it- i think she she can survive stuff like that she's yeah she's i think a big chunk of the Swedish population would be quite happy to see her as a, as a prime minister but she doesn't want to have that role. I mean under under um when Kate Osmore was the aid British uh, shadow aid minister um she was until last year. Um she produced a document for for the Labour Party called A World for the Many Not the Few um which I've I've written about for for renewal which actually I think was in our footnotes for the last episode even. And um it it committed Labour, it committed a Corbyn Labour government to a feminist foreign policy and a feminist mm. aid policy, um, which I find really interesting. And there are some ways in which they talk about this in a really interesting way. But I, I think countries, when they talk about a feminist foreign policy, it's it's very complicated, right? Like, to go back to C- Cynthia Enlow, it's, it's complicated to work out what it means to have a feminist foreign policy. Yeah. Is it just about 
you know, is it that that kind of um, the sort of the joke, the sort of Twitter joke about the liberal, liberal feminists who are like, you know, have a woman in charge of torture. Yeah. You, you know how far is how far is a feminist foreign policy just kind of representing white elite women yeah. at the UN or whatever, yeah. which is a big debate that you know Spare Rib has in the nineteen seventies. In 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 the nineteen seventies, they're talking about glass ceilings of pay mm. in the United Nations, and there's this whole article in in this feminist magazine about how terrible it is that women aren't in key roles in the UN, and then. But sort of do we really want to be complicit in the world system that this is propping up? Mm. Well, also and also kind of you know maybe they're not the women you need to worry about most, right? Like actually <laughs> maybe when you're looking at the UN and gender, what you need to be looking at is is things like UNICEF and yeah. things like UN, you know, the United Nations treatment of women in the developing world. Um, and so it's it's interesting that kind of call for a feminist foreign policy in terms of what it actually, you know, is feminism fundamentally about. It, like is it a moral program is it a political yeah. program is it something is it just to do with gender equality it, how far does a feminist foreign policy imply that you need to be intersectional in that so how far yeah. is it actually about gender rights but also about um you know rights for like lbg L, lgbtq populations yeah and it's this is because i have on occasion so feminist foreign policy sweden's feminist foreign policy is one of my areas of expertise and i feel like i could quite easily go and lecture people about <laughs> it but i sort of stopped myself and this is where i think as a historian i have a right to refuse theories and mm-hmm. the sort of i think you can probably make quite a good living out of creating the structures and the programs for how to reorganize foreign officers and kind of reprogram the philosophy behind them so that they are more just in a sort of feminist fashion mm-hmm. but there's you know that kind of assumes a foreign policy isn't automatically problematic i have a problem with nations mm. <laughs> this is this just, is always my problem with the aid stuff in that on one hand clearly an aid policy which is built be, built more around you know cash transfers for example which is which are always a good thing often a good thing you which know is how the swedish aid policy has, yeah, has yeah, been yeah. built up for for but, a long time but like you know reading reading that labor party document half of it i was reading thinking yeah this is great you know it's really good to have an aid policy which is more historically informed it would be really good it's really good to have you know have differed thinking about itself more as having a role in terms of like reparations and duty and things mm. you know actually this isn't about charity this is about righting the wrongs of imperialism which is what barbara castle said when she set up the over the overseas development ministry in 1964 her argument was this is about we have a duty you know colonialism was a bad thing and we need to kind of pay back essentially this mm. is about you know a more egalitarian world system mm. But then the problem is what you always, what I always hit up against is that fundamentally aid, actually for nations, what aid is about is is soft power. Mm. I mean, aid is about Britain having a role in the world. Aid is about creating markets, often because mm. it's about creating economies in the global south which can take British goods, or it's about you know it's or it's about managing immigration, or it's about you know aid is about lots and lots of things. Yeah, influencing policy right. in a very or backing up foreign policy, fashion. or just putting a fig leaf over foreign policy. You know, mm. one of the reasons why women are always aid ministers is because they soften British foreign policy. When when the foreign office is selling arms to Saudi Arabia, the aid the aid agencies are sending humanitarian aid to Yemen, and no one ever looks at that and thinks, well, you know, you're, why are you doing these two things mm. that are simultaneously contradictory? And so, you kind of, I get so far with the argument that yeah, aid should be feminist and it should be egalitarian, and it should be post-colonial. But then also, I sort of think it shouldn't exist. Yeah. But but then also, but, but then I also, you know, I can't. You, the Daily Mail constantly calling for aid spending to be cut. Yeah. I don't agree with because then because they're not calling for it to be cut from a from the same perspective, right? They cut the aid, yeah. you know. So, ideally, it would all be dealt with by international organisations, yeah, like supranational organisations. But then they're problematic. Oh my God, Charlotte, we've just painted ourselves into a corner. This is the thing, and this is this is the problem with it, isn't it? That you you kind of go down a, and actually, you know, the people I know who work in in aid and in humanitarianism, you know, it's not like the people working in these organisations don't aren't very familiar with these ideas. People are. A lot of the people who work for organisations like Save the Children are profoundly ambivalent, actually, mm. about the kind of aid industry mm. and are thinking much more in the here and now. Actually, one of the really interesting things about British foreign policy history that I think is one of the really good things that's happening is that we're thinking about foreign policy 
and thinking about things like aid and charity. So like Emily Bourne's work on Save the Children, Anna Bocking Welch thinking about things like how foreign policies are received at home, like the WI's relationship to foreign policy, things like Freedom from Hunger, the United Nations campaigns, mm. to Hila Sasson's work on kind of British humanitarianism and how it relates to all sorts of things like charity shops mm. and and sort of Britain's Britain's relationship to itself and to the world. And I think that's, you know, thinking about foreign policy in terms of thinking about it's it's one way to make it less about white men sitting in rooms and talking. Yeah. And to think more about the complexities of it. And not necessarily to treat these organisations as any better than the Foreign Office. No. Right. It's I not, think that might be key. It's not the yeah. key finding of our episode. Yeah. <laughs> Everything is terrible. It's terrible. Everyone is awful. <laughs> do you have a poem? I do have a poem, actually, yeah. It's about how terrible everything is. Oh, it kind of is, actually, yeah. Um, <laughs> so the uh, the poem this week is by um, Muriel Rukiza, um, who also wrote a brilliant poem, which is not the one I'm going to talk about now, but a brilliant poem about Katakolvitz, um, which includes the line, what would happen if one woman told the truth about her life, the world would split open, which mm. is a very famous line of poetry, and I'd never actually realised who it was by, so I was very excited. Um, this poem... It's called Poem, and then in brackets it's called I Lived in the First Century of World Wars. And the first line is, I lived in the first century of world wars. Most mornings I would be more or less insane. The newspapers would arrive with their careless stories. The news would pour out of various devices, interrupted by attempts to sell products to the unseen. I would call my friends on other devices. They would be more or less mad for similar reasons she talks about kind of trying to write and trying to connect to people around the world slowly I would get to pen and paper make my poems for others unseen and unborn in the day I would be reminded of those men and women brave setting up signals across vast distances and she finishes we would try by any means to reach the limits of ourselves to reach beyond ourselves to let go the means to wake I lived in the first century of these wars it's that idea of being kind of continuously assailed with the horrors of foreign policy yeah the horrors of being in a world yeah um and that kind of sense of it being constantly coming at you that sort of neatly leads us to our recommendations as well which is um to do with well i suppose the theme is refugees Hmm. sort of humanizing refugees well just and kind of writing taking again another area of foreign policy that maybe when people think about foreign policy they don't necessarily think about refugees as a topic right Mm. that actually refugees are an an obvious and inevitable consequence of much of the foreign policy Mm. pursued by many countries around the world Mm. Britain but many other countries as well Um, so I'm going to recommend a book by an academic called Lindsay Stonebridge called Placeless People Writing Rights and Refugees and she's written she's written done quite a lot of work before on Hannah Arendt and the book is about Arendt but also about Simone Weil George Orwell, Samuel Beckett, um, writers who had experiences of exile or who had experiences of being refugees themselves. And But she she writes through, she uses their written work and their literature, but she also kind of talks more generally about this kind of moment at the end of the Second World War where a new nation is being created and, and on one hand you have this kind of the creation of the human rights regime um, and, and the kind of limits of human rights, which I was really taken with in her argument, um, the idea that actually human rights is, is, is really problematic as a, as a way, as a framework to try to actually treat people like people and, and give people humanity. Mm. Not least because actually refugees aren't really properly dealt with in the human rights regime, and certain refugees more than others. So Palis- the Palestinians, for example, in 1948, when the Declaration of Human Rights is passed, are explicitly defined as not being part of this. Yeah. They're, they are a humanitarian problem, not a rights problem. Mm. Um, and she talks about the problems that, you know, if you get to the point where you are claiming human rights as a basis for being treated like a human, you've basically admitted that you're already lost. If the, if the only way that you can claim sort of any... If the only way that you can claim... If you, you can kind of demand people t- treat you properly is by appealing to the fact that you're human. Yeah. You've sort of you've sort of got down to a point where where you haven't you don't really have everything and also the problem with the way that rights are they can only be guaranteed by nations so what happens when nations are trying to kick people out or deny people their rights yeah the human rights framework doesn't doesn't really work very well with that so it's a really really good book i would really recommend it great 
Um, mine is a memoir of war. Mm-hmm. It's actually, I think that might be the subtitle of it. It is. Wow. It's um, Madness Visible by Janine Di Giovanni, who is a, a foreign correspondent and mostly war correspondent mm-hmm. for... Um, well, I suppose she was a war correspondent then. She's more of a foreign correspondent now for The Times, The London mm-hmm. Times. She's American, though, I think. Um, and her, I was reminded of her a few weeks ago because she, um, I follow her on Twitter, and she tweeted about this article she's done for Granta, which is about mm-hmm. how the Bosnian War was her war. Mm-hmm. As a war correspondent, you only have one war in which you sort of fall in love with the war. It becomes your war, and Bosnia mm-hmm. was that war for her. She was... Uh, in Sarajevo during the siege and the life she sort of led there. Mm-hmm. I think she's a very she's she's an absolutely excellent journalist, but I think she's particularly um interesting because she is a woman mm. and she's interested in everyday life in occupied territories or mm-hmm. in wars. Um there's a lot of humanity in mm. her accounts. She meets people, she sees people, she talks to people. There's some really terrible sequences in um uh, madness visible which is when she encounters streams of refugees who are, have literally just moments ago left their burning houses and mm. are like joining the stream of refugees running away from from Serb um, army mm-hmm. guns and stuff and um, it's you know it's heartbreaking in many ways and she writes so well um, but it's so it, it, it can be quite a tough book to read mm-hmm. Um, but there is a lot of humanity in it and there's a lot of love for people which I think is, is, is really interesting and I would really recommend it I would recommend any Janine Di Giovanni book she's written, written a more recent one on Syria actually which I haven't read yet mm-hmm. um, but she's got other books on the cause of her crisis and stuff and it's it's always fascinating mm-hmm. and heartbreaking but she finds people mm-hmm. inside all of her stories which I think is quite rare for a war correspondent mm-hmm. which quite often is a uh, genre of writing that is also about which bomb dropped where mm. but she it's... talks about the people that they drop on yeah so Janine to Giovanni definitely <laughs> madness visible if you're interested in in Bosnia in particular great um and so this is the end of our first part on Britain in the world mm-hmm. our next and foreign policy yeah. yeah so this is episode 24 episode 25 is the second part of our mothering special yes right and then so we'll be back with British foreign policy for episode 26 yes. which will be more Brexity. yeah we'll talk more about Brexit yeah uh-uh. um, but until then you'll find us on the internet we're yeah. on Twitter at TNKpod yeah at Emma Eleanor at, at Lotta Lydia uh, we're on Facebook. We have a newsletter that you should, should subscribe to so you get your foot, our footnotes yep. in your inbox. We have just had T-shirts for sale that they are no longer on sale, but we're always looking for contributions. So if you can, you can always donate some some money to us and you can get some cool freebies instead. Yep. But that's it for this week. Yep. See you later. Bye. Bye.